Hello, everyone, and welcome to the North American Irish Coaches Show. Today, we have Donna Reardon on the show. Don is a former professional player with Middlesbrough, Grimsby Town, Notts County, and has uh, been a manager and a coach uh, in many parts of the world. Don, how's things in Ireland? Well, as I said earlier, and today is a lovely day in the west of Ireland in Galway. Um, you know yourself, being a, a native, it, uh, it can be hot and cold and be very wet. Um, but what a beautiful part of the world. So uh, life is good. Good stuff. Don, give us a bit of background on yourself, uh, where you're from and, and your early days uh, with football and, 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 and that. Well, born in Dublin, um, lived in a big estate in Dublin called Ballyfermot. Um, you know, it's fairly famous or infamous for different reasons, but very famous for, for soccer, really, for football players. Um, at the age of five, I won my first medal, which was like a road league. Um, unfortunately, I, I say this is the only regret I have in football. I actually took my medal to school, showed me mates, <laughs> put it in my pocket, left it in the cloakroom and never saw it again. That's my only regret in football. And I've had a few relegations, guys, but um, lost my first medal. I can remember going home, you know, really in fear of what my mother might say. She didn't say anything for a couple of weeks. And then she was cleaning the, uh, the cabinet. Noticed my medal wasn't shown and uh, asked me what happened. Where's the medal? And he said, I told you not to take it to, my, to, to school. Sure enough, clip around the ear, but it didn't bring the medal back. But uh, Anyway, from five years of age, I progressed with a guy called Joe Kelly, who was my first coach, an amazing man. Unfortunately, he passed away a couple of years ago. Um, you know, we played school by football. I was playing under 13 when I was eight. Um, incredible, really, that there was nothing other than under 13 at that stage. Um, so I think it helped you develop quicker and mature quicker as far as football was concerned. And when I got to 12, um, I was playing for a team called Rossmore Celtic, again, managed by Joe Kelly. Uh, we won the 13C um, league, and we then got to the final of the 13 Cup. We played the winners of the A-League home farm, who had some fantastic players, and we beat them after a replay, which was incredible. And sure enough, you know, we were on a high after that, and about a week later... We were all brought in um, and a guy called John Wilkes and his assistant or co-manager, Jerry Flynn, had spoken to Joe Kelly and said, and they basically gave him a plan for half of that team that had just won the double. So the idea was that the five players, myself included, would, would, be, uh, would join a club called Cherry Orchard, which is obviously a very famous club. Um, and they built a team around us. Now, I remember crying literally for days because the team, you, you know, just won the double, had been broken up. Um, I didn't see what these guys saw down the road, but um, it was an amazing experience. And at 12 years of age also, when, when we joined this Cherry Orchard Club, my brother Dermot was a player for the, for the men's team. and uh, He was a fine player, but probably needed a little bit of coaching. And he basically said to me at 12 years of age, what do you want to be? And at 12 years of age, I mean, the dream is like many. I want to be a professional footballer. And he basically took me out every day after school. He, he had a, a night shift. And I really don't know whether that was his decision or whether it was the, you know, the, the company's decision. But he wanted to be able to train me every day after school on the local uh, park. 
Um, he covered all angles, left foot, right foot, obviously heading, you know, passing. Um, and at 15, for them from under 13, under 14, we had two very mediocre season, seasons with Cherry Orchard. But under 15, these guys, my brother included, and the two guys, they knew what we're doing. And under 15, we peaked. You know, we didn't know what peak was, to be honest, at that stage. But we peaked and we won the 15A. We won the 15A Cup. And five of us were on the international squad. I was captain. So that's really a brief um, kind of resume on what went on from a very early age. But uh, some incredible people. You know, uh, my brother had, you know, an idea and a plan put together, which probably, you know, it's only when you're in your late 20s or something, you realise what this guy did for you. Um, so it's always been, you know, I've always been very respectful and appreciative of what he did for me. Because, um, you know, it was one-to-one -one coaching, which is something that, you know, people don't have necessarily um, during their careers. But I, I was very fortunate. Yeah, Don, that's great to hear about your brother and how, how, how you guys probably and probably helped your development a lot. But my, my question here now is kind of based off what you've just mentioned there about you being um, the captain uh, under 15 for the, for the Irish mm -hmm. team. Now you've gotten to maybe a setup to where all these boys are the best in Ireland. How did that then help push you on and develop you for your career as your dream was going to yeah. be a pro? How did, how did that work? Yeah. Well, again, I suppose if you're, if you're playing you know, for Ireland, um, there's a good chance there'll be scouts watching. Um, of course. Now, it was, there was, there was a, a Dublin team as well, which really, you know, I think with the exception of two lads from Cork, um, was the international team, was the same squad, literally, except for two boys from Cork. Um, and we played Northern Ireland um, in Dublin, and uh, there was a scout called Norman Uprichard, I think he was a famous goalkeeper, played for Northern Ireland. And he, he came, he saw me play against the North and uh, he contacted Derby, which is where he was a scout at. And uh, he told him that, you know, I was worth looking at. So um, what was really funny as well, prior to that, sorry, Daryl, was the Ireland squad's uh, trials they had in, in Dublin, obviously. And uh, we checked you know, the squad lists, there was something like 40 to 50 kids' names, and my name wasn't on it. Um, and the managers kind of contacted the FAI and said, hang on, what's the problem here? You know, we've got four players in the squad, all right, for trials, but what about our captain? And they said, uh, oh, he's already picked. <laughs> what do you mean? Oh, he's exempt from, you know. And I thought this was total BS. I was losing the plot. I was going, don't believe them. They can't be, you know. Um, so I actually demanded that I went and played in the trial and fortunately played well, didn't have a nightmare, which could have turned things around. But um, <laughs> sure enough, um, I ended up, you know, getting, getting that captaincy and getting a place in the squad, which was great. But as I said, Derby County had uh, invited me over for a trial at Easter. Before that, we played Germany in, the, in Druid, but at Easter I was in Derby. And most of the apprentices had gone home for Easter. Um, so I was actually training in a training camp with the reserves, you know. So there was me, 14 years of age, training with adults. And um, now again, you, you know, I didn't know how good I was. I obviously was was probably better than I imagined. But you know, you kind of 
you're thinking, wow, what am I doing here? And I remember crying every night uh, of that trial and thinking, you know, I'm never going to come back here. I hate it. It's brutal. I want to be home with my mother and father and my brothers and my sister and so on. But um, sure enough, after the week's trial, I went back to Dublin and told everyone how much I hated it. Um, but in May of that year, on, on a Friday evening before the, the cup final, uh, the scout from Derby came over, flew into Dublin, took us to the Clarence Hotel, the one that Bono owns. We were sat there from Ballyferm, as I say, with like three knives and three forks, and we were all looking at each other going, what's going on here? What's this about? Um, you know, we'd never been to such a, a luxurious hotel kind of thing. And basically, the, the scout sold it to my mum and dad that, you know, we wanted want to sign your son, and we, we see a, a bright future. And... Um, that was it. I signed the next day, which was cup final day. Um, good catch. Can you hear me, guys? Yeah, earphone is. So it was next day. It was cup final day. Leeds played Arsenal and Leeds won. Um, and then on, I'd signed contract that day. Derby County, which was like to say. You hear me there? Yeah. Sorry, guys. Technical difficulties. So, Sorry, keep going, Don. Yeah. So what happened was, um, obviously, Arsenal were playing Leeds and Leeds won. But Leeds um, had to win on... They were second in the league. They had to beat Wolves on the Monday evening, the following Monday evening. And, um, you know, I wasn't... I, I just knew I'd sign for a team that finished second in the league. That was my opinion, because everyone thought Leeds would beat Wolves. And as it turned out, I think it was a draw. Um, and I remember playing on the street and my brother came running out and said, you've just signed for the league champions, by the way, because Leeds had drawn against uh, Wolves and Derby were the league champions. And I can remember seeing pictures on the TV, the lads in New Yorker absolutely out of their heads, having won the league when they just thought they were there for a bit of relaxation. So that was it. That was the start, really, I suppose, of my journey as a professional. I went over to Derby in the summer, um, for pre-season. I arrived in on uh, on the second Monday when they were doing the uh, the photo shoot. So uh, I'm stood in the in what was the kind of room between the medical room and the boot room and I look at Lost Soul and uh, Jimmy Gordon who was the first team coach said, son, what's your problem? And I went, uh, I don't have any boots for the photograph. And uh, you go, he was taking the mick now, to be fair to him. Not, not in a bad way, but he said, Jesus, guys, we've got a, an Irish footballer here without boots. Can you believe it? Like, all in good faith and all in good humour. But uh, Roy McFarland, who was my hero, by the way, he walked in and, uh, what's the problem, son? And I went, uh, I've no boots. And he had a bag up on the, the top of the cupboard and he pulled it down, a big Puma bag. And uh, inside there was two pairs of boots. And he said, here, try them on. What size are you? And I just said, oh, I don't know, eight, something like that. 
and uh, try these boots on. They were eight and a half. There's a picture somewhere with me in these beautiful King Pele yellow stripe end that Jesus, they were unheard of at that stage in, in Ireland. And uh, I'm sat there on the front row on the ground, smiling and with the boots on and came back in and Ryan Max said, what were they like? And I went, yeah, they were fine. And he goes, um, well, they, yeah, are they too big for you? I said, a little bit. I didn't want to say. I said, a little bit bigger. And he reached into the bag and pulled out the eights and he said, look, try them. They were perfect. So I goes down to the dressing room where the apprentices were and I say, walked in with the boot or at the box and the boots and the lads are going, uh, where did you get them from? I said, oh, Roy Mack gave them to me. And he went, oh, you mean to break in? So in them days, the apprentices used to wear the boots first, get the, get the blisters and, and, you know, let the pros have them broken in when they were in a week or two. So I'm saying, no, no, they're from, they're mine. He gave them to me. He says, you know, the lads were saying, don't kid yourself. That's just, you know, to break them in. I went back into the dressing room and said, sorry, uh, uh, Mr. McFarland, but are they mine to keep? And he went, yeah, that's what I said. So I was just blabbergasted. Anyway, that day we did pre another preseason day. We ran and ran, never saw a ball for two weeks, ended ran around the golf course in Derby. And I remember going home and, you know, back to my digs and thinking, I can't wait to tell my brothers that, you know, I got a pair of boots from my hero, brand new pair of boots. And as I was rushing home, I kept getting cramped. I obviously wasn't fit. Um, got home, wrote a letter. We didn't have a didn't have a phone in our house. So probably about a week later, then a letter comes back from McDermott to say, "Wow, fantastic!" So amazing memories, you know. Great days, great days. Good stuff. <clears throat> Fast forward then, Don. So you played for obviously Derby and Preston and Middlesbrough and and Grimsby and Notts County. What's your memory? What's a, like some of the Give us like a best memory of your playing days, like or a specific stadium uh, you yeah. played at, or or a or a matchup in midfield who you played yeah. against, like one or one or two memories like that. I suppose you know you always remember your debut, um, and I came on at Tottenham for Charlie George. Would you believe when there was only twelve players, I was the only sub. Obviously, Charlie, I think, picked up an injury, and I came on midfield, and uh, you know I'm looking around or or the stadium. This is before, obviously. Nowadays, it's even better. But uh, quite funnily, I actually, I attempted a shot um, and it went, it didn't just go over the bar end, it, it went over the stand and out of the ground. <laughs> now, I remember having scored and then later on at Tottenham uh, for Notts County. I remember looking at this stand, uh, you know, and thinking, yeah, that, that obviously, that's where I had one shot before, now I scored with another shot. But they, they had, when I went back to see it, when they knocked in the stadium down, sure enough, uh, they told me that I'm looking at this stand from outside and it looks huge, but it was a new stand compared to again sorry guys i don't know i didn't touch anything that time yeah i don't know what happened no um so that was my first game ever and, and that stadium made a huge impression um i suppose later on i played at anfield and you know again 
famous shot from about 30 yards where it ended up in row Z in the cup. Um, they were two amazing stadiums. Old Trafford, obviously, later on in my career. I played there in reserves, but first day of the 1991 uh, season, uh, played against Man United, first game of the season for Knox, and basically tore my Achilles after 53 minutes. That was a sad memory. But them three stadiums were, were huge, and you know, as far as size and the atmosphere and so on. Regarding playing against people, um, I suppose I've got to mention Meadowlands as well, by the way, guys. That was just an incredible place. Um, played there in the playoffs one year when it was full and, you know, nerves were, were, were definitely racing. Um, and, of course, played the first year I went there, um, went to the Meadowlands, had a picture with Pele, which was incredible, and then goes into the dressing room and Bill Folks was the manager and God, God rest him. He said, uh, Don, you've got, your, you've got a big job today. You've got a man mark, Franz Beckenbauer. And, uh, you know, I was looking for the nearest toilet then, I suppose. But, um, you know, I mean, Roy Mack was my hero, but Beckenbauer was my superhero. What a player. You know, you kind of model yourself on a player. and He was my ideal kind of type player. Um, so I played against him that day and he was talking to me saying, you know, where are you from? And I said, oh, from... Ireland and what team do you play for? And I said, oh, in England with Derby. And he said, oh, Roy McFarland. And I was so amazed that he, he, he knew this guy, you know, so well. Um, I asked him, was he going to the World Cup in Mexico? He said, no, which was kind of, you know, for the news really, I suppose, but should have sold it to the newspaper. Um, but that was an amazing day. And I was going to ask him for his tie-ups, which was kind of something that happened back then, but I became very cheeky and asked him for his shirt. And he, he, he gave me a shirt. Um, I took it into the dressing room. I put my tracksuit on, put the shirt up the tra underneath the tracksuit. Bill Folks was saying, you're not having a shower. And I said, no. And he said, why not? And I showed him the shirt and he realized I didn't want to let it loose. Um, so, yeah, I suppose they are memories and Beckenbauer would be a, an amazing uh, opponent. Played against Mark George Best another time when your, your nerves are very, very high. Johan Cruyff took the mick out of me one night in Tulsa, you know, trying me trying to be smart, playing out in the back, dispossessed me. And uh, Colin Bolton, luckily, was behind me in goal and Cruyff had a shot and he saved it and then he saved it again. And Colin literally grabbed me by the throat and threatened me. If I ever did that again, he'd kill me. Um, but yeah, you know, Gerd Muller, these are like lads I was collecting, you know, picture cards of as a kid and, and here I am playing against them. So they were... Amazing days, and I was 20, 21 years of age at that stage. So um, they're the kind of stadiums and players that, you know, were, were amazing. But in England, there was a lad who you, you'll know, but, you know, he wouldn't have been one of the most famous. Gordon Davis, remember him, guys? He was a little uh, striker, played for Fulham. Um, you know, he was probably a foot smaller than me. But I could never, you know, when I was playing centre-half, I could never win a header against him. He would stand to the side rather than in front of you. He'd get a run and he'd, he'd be like a little bird in the air. He'd flick the ball on or, you know, he was very good. Um, and during the pandemic this year, I actually made contact with him, um, which was really, really good. And, and, and uh, you know, told him my, he was the worst player I ever had to play against. And he was delighted to get the story. Um, so, we, we, you know, we, we text each other on, on Facebook, which is, which is great to, you know, and reminiscing on the old days. Fantastic, really. Yeah, 
yeah, Don, those are some some class memories, different different people, different types of characters in the football world that you've run into. Um, is there is there a few managers that kind of you you were under um, at, at different teams that you kind of felt look at one day I'd like to be a manager? You yeah. kind of learn a few things or, or the experiences with them that okay, yeah, I think that's something for me to do after I stop playing. Was there a few managers like that? I, I think the first fella, obviously, everyone will know, Brian Clough was, I mean, I was only an apprentice, obviously, but you're still around, you know, we used to train around the first with the first team, not necessarily with them, but we'd all warm up together. And, and Cluffy was, you know, he was huge. He was everywhere in, in, in the ground, in the training ground. And you saw how he was so strict on discipline, Dara. You know, it was... yeah. It was the first impression that I got at Derby. You must be disciplined. Um, otherwise, you have no chance. Um, I have a favourite saying, probably derived from around that period, which is like, you know, there's two things you, you need to be a top player. The first one is attitude. The second one is attitude. Um, you know, I think it ticks all the boxes. If you have a good attitude, you will be a good listener. You'll be a good trainer, etc. But Brian Clough was just, he was larger than life. He really was, you know, and everyone was afraid of him from the youngest apprentice, which was probably me, to the oldest player and captain, Roy McFarland. I remember one day Roy McFarland was at training and we're doing, the, you know, just about to go into the warm up or walking around the track um, where, you know, the pitches were, but it was a running track. And Roy had both hands in his pockets. And uh, Cluffy was about 50, 50 yards away, you know, and he goes, hey, young man. Didn't matter whether you were apprentice, as I say, or the, or the first team captain. Yo, man. Everybody looked around the course when they heard that voice. And, uh, and he points at Roy and he goes, uh, take your hands out of your pockets, young man. And, uh, and you know, Roy McFarland, uh, sorry, Gaffer, sorry. Yeah. And, of course, there was a few others who had their hands in their pockets who hadn't got caught. But um, next day, you know, we were putting the kit out and um, as was part of our job, our routine. And sure enough, um, we put Roy's out and his tracksuit bottom looked a little bit different. I'm saying, what, what's different? And I, I don't know what it was, but what happened was Cluffy had told the, the woman in the, the laundry to stitch the pockets in the tracksuit bottoms. So McFarland comes in. I, I just disappeared. I got out of the way. And he's going, what's going on? You know, but that was, you know, he's, he thought that was sloppy seeing. And I'm, I, it's rubbed off on me because if I see lads now in training, I say the same, hey, hands out your pockets and I give them, you know, if I said the next time I see them, it's five presses kind of thing. Um, so he was amazing, Cluffy, you know, I mean, he was, he was so famous how he achieved things. The stories about this man, you know, um, preparation for games. I mean, I spoke to Martin O'Neill, as you guys, you know, I know him quite well and the stories that come out, I mean, the week before they played um, in the European Cup final against uh, Hamburg, Kevin Keegan, remember that? You guys yeah. probably not even born, but sure enough, uh, I was with Preston at the time. We were in uh, Palamalore, and uh, Steve Elliott, who was one of our players, ex-Forest, said, you know something, Forest are coming here to train before the cup final. And we went, Jesus, I wonder where, I wonder will we see any of them? And we were going, no, no chance. You know, they'd be up in bed every night, nine o'clock, whatever. Keegan was with his group, the Germans in the Alps in Italy and so on, so... Anyway, we're in the first night that Forrest were in town. We're in this bar, and um, that was the first night I ever met Martin O'Neill. They walked in and all the Forrest lads, and they drank us under the table. 
it was unbelievable. I mean, it was incredible. And we're going, oh, geez, well, there's a week away, I suppose, to the cup final, so they'd be grand. Next day, they went on the beach. They jogged up the beach, 15 minutes, jogged back. That was it. No, no football at all. The next night, you know, we're thinking, we won't see them out tonight. Oh, unbelievable. I remember going for a pee in a, in a, a nightclub at about three o'clock in the morning. Peter Shilton walks in. And he's, it's up against, one of these up against the wall ones, like, you know, excuse the, the, the description, lads, but I, we're both stood there shoulder to shoulder having to pee, like, you know, and he kind of, uh, he's rocking. He looked like he was on, uh, on a ferry going to, to Dublin, like, you know. And uh, he, he goes, how are you? And I went, how are you? And he, he goes, I said, you all right? And he goes, yeah. And then all of a sudden he just rocked a bit more and he banged his head against the wall and kind of rocks again. And I said, are you all right? And he goes, yeah, I'm fine. And like he was out of his head. I mean, it was incredible. Um, but we went back to Preston like two or three days before they went to play in the final. I was telling all my friends, do not put any money on Forest. They're gonna get hammered. They're pissed every night. Gonna <laughs> obviously, obviously it was different. They won. Um, and Martin told me when they played Liverpool, I think it was in the semi-final or the quarter-final. They were winning, I think, one nil from the first leg, and they were on the way to Anfield. And Cluffy stopped the bus and went to an off-license. Brought on a case of lager. Everyone have a, a can. Off they went. Won the game. So he was incredible. You know, he recognised how to prepare teams. Um, and this was... He didn't, he didn't want any nerves for this match. He just took it casually. He trusted his players and they won. Um, but going on from him, I suppose, as good as he was, there was two other guys who really impressed me. Neil Warnock, who, you know, I think we're going to touch on later, was incredible, really. And some great stories about him but the best manager from you know the overall point of view was Bob Stoke in my in my opinion you know this guy had didn't have two pennies to rub together really but he grabbed free he took me as a free transfer another lad Graham Bell brought them into you know brought us all together and his tactics were decent he obviously tried to play football um, and he, he balanced the books he was incredible but this guy uh, and the direct, he was having a go at me like every single day. I was playing uh, sweeper the first year. I scored eight goals. I was second leading goal scorer, I think it was. Um, every game, after the game, son, son, you've got to do better. You've got to do the training. I'd be playing while pinging balls around. Son, son. You know, one bad pass out of 20. Son, come on, your standards and all this. So I won every player of the year that was told, you know, it was capable. And, that was up for grabs, um, eight goals, as I say. And then start the next season, I'm thinking, ah, it'd be grand this year. He won't have a goal with me. Jesus, day one, son, come on, that's no good. So this went on for about two months, and, and I, I went and knocked on his door, you know, and I said, uh, Gaffer, can I have a word? And he said, yeah, come in, son, sit down, what's up? He said, uh, I said, Gaffer, like, you know, been here like over a year now, and got player of the year, and you're always having a goal with me. Son, before you say another word, the day I stop having a go at you is the day you should worry. Yeah. And I looked at him and I'm thinking, yeah. uh, okay. Okay, son, off you go. And I couldn't say anything. I was out the door. I'm walking down the corridor on Pop Robson, Brian Robson, who played for West Ham and Newcastle, assistant manager. He's walking up and he goes, son, you all right? And I went, yeah, Pop, yeah, good. I just have a word with the gaffer. And he, he's told me the day he stops having a go at me is the day I should worry. I said, what does that mean? He said, son, he won't even bother talking to you. If he doesn't rate you, he'll have you out the door. 
And it was an unbelievable lesson I learned, you know. Incredible. Now, um, I finished leading. I, he changed me. At the start of the season, he says that your sweeper last year, we're changing tactics. We're going 4-4-2. So you're going from sweeper. And I, I said, what, centre-back? No, 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 right wing. What? But no pace. You know, no trick. And he goes, yeah, you'll be grand. And he was unbelievable. What he, what he was able to see in me was incredible. I ended up leading joint scorer with Malcolm Poskett on 10 goals. Incredible. His vision and his, you know, the way he read players was amazing. Um, one of my proudest moments was um, when I was manager at Torquay, player manager at Torquay. We went to Bury one really cold night in the middle of winter. And um, who turns up? Bob Stoko. And uh, I think he had an association with Bury actually. And we played. I think we won now. And after the game, he come up to me and said, son, well done. And I went, <laughs> I was so shocked, you know. First time ever Bob Stoker praised me kind of thing. But I was thrilled as well. But just an amazing, amazing manager, you know. He, But just again, going back to the Turkey days, sorry, lads. I said I'd be a talker. But what happened was I'm sat in my office one day in Turkey, just doing a bit of paperwork, knock on the door. This kid walks in, he goes, Gaffer, can I have a word? And I went, yeah. He says, why are you having a go at me every day? And I went, wow, this is uh, something I remember. Um, and I, I said, sit down there, son. Look, I said, the day I stop having a go is the day you should worry. And he looked at me like the same as I looked at Bob Soko, thinking, what are you on about? I said, look, my favorite manager told me this story. I said, but I'm going to finish it. I said, so, you know, you, the day I stop having a go, it means I won't fancy it anymore. I'll probably get rid of you because your attitude has changed or something. I said, keep doing what you're doing. But it was an amazing, complete, you know, turnaround from me as a player to me as a coach. Um, huge respect for both of their managers um, and what they achieved with me and, uh, you know, their success as managers anyway. They both had brilliant careers. Yeah, they sound sound like great characters. Neil, Neil Warnock, you, you touched on. Um, yeah. you, helped, you helped him at Sheffield United after playing with him at Knott's. Um, yeah. what was your role in your staff with him and what did you gain from him probably now from the other side where you've just told a little bit of a story there about yeah. your world sweat yeah. what, what was the character I suppose I'll just rewind a little bit back to his days as, as manager not sorry um, because the one thing I learned was never write a player off because um, he wrote me off you know start of the 1990 season 1990-91 he pulled me in um, into the office and he goes uh you're not going to like this, but uh, your first team days are over. What? Okay, I was kind of 33, which seems old now, but that stage I didn't feel old. And So he goes, yeah, he said, but I want you to be player manager of the reserves. We have some great young players coming through. I want you to develop them and so on. And again, probably I'm thinking, no, I don't want this. But anyway, he kind of threw in a Ford Escort or something as a club car and said, look, I don't know whether it was that that persuaded me or what, but he was determined I wasn't going to play again. Lo and behold, in September of that year, early season, one of the lads got injured, put me back in the team. We played West Ham. We lost 1-0. I played very well. Next game, Plymouth away, told me I wasn't going to be playing. Uh, first time in his career as a manager, he dropped someone for playing well. So I was disgusted. They lost 4-0. I was delighted. <laughs> I was back in the team on the Saturday for the Cup. And that year, you know, was the best year of my career. Incredible. 
when I was told at the beginning that my playing career was over, but it turned out to be my best year. We got to the quarterfinal of the Cup against Tottenham and scored the best goal of my career. We won promotion at Wembley. Um, so, you know, Neil, Neil said it to me. He said, Jesus, son, I, I'd, I'd written you off. I really had. Um, and, of course, it was, as I said, we played against United in the first game of the season. I got injured, was out for the whole season. He told the press later on that, you know, missing me was the one had I been available for the season, he probably would have stayed up, which was nice. But he was just an, he was just an incredible um, man, you know, and, and big enough to admit that he made a mistake. So that's something that I took on board as a, as a coach as well. Um, so, you know, it was, it was incredible, really, um, the effect this guy had on me. So I was in Ireland for seven years, uh, four years in Galway, three years in Sligo. First person I rang when I went back to England, where the family was based, was Neil. And um, I said, uh, Gaffer, any, uh, any chance for a gig at, you know, Sheffield? And he went, eh, yeah, you know, would you be interested in the academy? Yeah, absolutely, I'd love to, you know. So he said, tell you what, come up tomorrow, drive up from Derby, which is only about 40 miles away. He says, we'll have a chat. So I drove up the next day. This is no word of a lie. We're in the office talking. And uh, he goes, eh, did I mention um, academies in China? I went, no, you didn't. <laughs> um, which was, you know, I go, hang on a second. You never mentioned China. And he goes, oh, I thought I did. And he brought Kevin McCabe in, who was the chairman. And Kevin came in and spoke to me for literally five minutes and said, uh, you'll love it. He says, you'll be fine. And again, because I can talk so much, I suppose, you know, not shy as such. Um, he, he saw my character as being one that would be able to adapt to a foreign language, a foreign culture and so on. Neil told me he wanted me to be, you know, director of football in the academy. We had one in Tianjin. Um, and then eventually they bought a club called Chengdu, Chengdu Sheffield, Chengdu Blades. Um, and I was in overall charge, I suppose, again, of director of football at that club, um, which turned out to be a real success. So, you know, it was frightening going to a country like that. But um, one of the biggest um, pluses in my career, really, and great, great experiences uh, throughout the whole 10 years. So I was, I was literally a director of football uh, for three or four years in Chengdu. And uh, we, we, we changed everything. Know, and we improved the academy. There was kids in the academy that make you know bones about it. They were very, very thin. They looked undernourished, um, undertrained, etc. We just completely changed that. We had the fitness coaches coming over from Sheffield, you know, sorting all this out, and obviously got good players into the first team and, and won promotion after two seasons. Um, had a huge line of kids coming through into the first team you know, over the three or four years that I was there as well and, and after, after I left. So it was, a, it was an amazing experience um, and I was thrilled that Neil had given me the opportunity, even though originally I thought it was going to be in Sheffield. Um, but, you know, if you ever get a chance to, to work abroad, guys, take it as Ender's doing now. Um, you as well, Darren. You know, it's, I think it's a, it's, it's a remarkable uh, journey when you go to countries like this. Absolutely. Don, fast forward then again to, to China, obviously uh, getting yeah. involved with the Chinese women's national team in the Olympics. And how was that experience? I mean, what, 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 a, what an experience to have. Incredible. Um, you know, I, I remember the chairman telling me and I thought he was taking the mick, you know, but 
Um, what had happened because we had won promotion and there was obviously a I made an impression in a few people's minds who I didn't realize, but um, he just said the, the FA had been onto him um, and the women's Olympic team were preparing for the, the games and they wanted myself and the fitness coach, you know, because they felt a, a director of football and the fitness coach had been the difference for us to get promotion. Um, so the FA asked, could they borrow us? Um, uh, it was off season, so it was okay. And uh, we, we traveled up to Beijing um, to the training camp. And it was amazing. I mean, I, there was no need for security, but there was security everywhere. Um, you know, the coach was, was get, you know, he was getting on a bit. Um, and he was, I was thinking, you know, he'd probably let me collect the bibs or the balls and that, but, you know, he, he, he literally threw me in at the deep end and said, I want you to, I want you to coach my, my girls. I want, you know, I want you to tell me your ideas and tell me how you're going to coach and all that. And he would stand and watch, which was incredible. Um, so, you know, we had, we, I, I think we, we made an impression there. And, but one of the, the most amazing things was we, we were playing in a place called Qingwandao and um, it was about, I don't know, 250 miles from Beijing. And, you know, it was too, too near to fly. So we, we got on a bus and all the players, all the staff on this bus leaving Beijing. And imagine now it was like going on to the M1 in England. Um, and there wasn't a car on the road. You know, they blocked the M1, as they said, in China for like 250 miles so we could travel. So again, it was to do with security, not that there was any threat, but we had the whole motorway to ourselves. I've never seen anything like it. Um, but it was just a marvelous experience working with you know the best players in China. Um, we won our three group games. The crowds were amazing. Unfortunately, we lost to Japan in the quarterfinal. But like I say, and one of the biggest experiences of my life. Um, quite a funny little incident that arose from it last week, which was mad. As I mentioned earlier, the weather here was brutal at times. And the other night, it, I was going to training and my missus said, you need some wet bottoms, you know, get some. You've got some upstairs, haven't you? And I went, yeah. And it was a pair of, uh, it was a wet, part of a wetsuit that I had from the 2008 Olympics. And uh, I went training with the under-13s. And uh, one of the lads, a goalkeeper, said to me, Don, he says, uh, what about them bottoms? Because I had the China national team emblem on it and the flag. And uh, he goes, where'd you get them? I says, oh, long story soon. I said, 2008 um, Olympic Games in China. And uh, I said, they gave us this kit, like, you know, and he went, really? I said, yeah. He said, do you know something, Don? Them tracksuit bottoms, he says, them wet bottoms are nearly as old as me. <laughs> 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 and I was like, oh, my God. I'm like, You're making me feel old. You're making me feel old. But I, I still obviously have the, uh, the whole wet tracksuit and they gave us some nice kit which was it was a pleasure working with them they were really were um you know fantastic people and um the journey only got us to the quarterfinal i think the americans won won the world cup or the olympics that year um but yeah fantastic experience fantastic don share with us um the best female player you've worked with and the best male player you've worked with uh, during your coaching time? Yeah, excellent question. Um, I'll go back to China. Actually, uh, this girl, Handwan, uh, Han was a striker who played um, 
up front for China. She was, you know, I think she played some like 160 games for our country, scored about 100 goals as well, I think, along the way. Um, she was just, you know, a really, really top class pro, um, great trainer, great finisher, uh, motivating the players, you know, even though she probably wasn't captain, but she was just a phenomenal figure. Um, you know, and I played or worked with a lot of women down the years. And she just really is the, you know, the, the full ticket, as they say. And, um, I think everyone in the team looked up to her, but she, she mixed with everyone as well. She wasn't, you know, aloof. She was really a brilliant person to have in the dressing room as well. Um, so she would be the best female. In Ireland, um, having worked with the Galway women's team for three years, a girl who hit, you know, made an impression on me straight away, Lindsay McKee, played for me for Galway. She still plays for Galway now. She's finished leading goal scorer this year. But, like, when I'd seen, you know, some women play in the past, you know, they kind of didn't have the coordination um, as, as, as good as they are nowadays because there's a lot of fantastic women players in the world of football. But in, even in Ireland, the, you know, when I came back, the, there was a lot of very, very good players. But this girl was, you know, you could put her in a men's team at a very decent level and she, she wouldn't look amiss. She wouldn't look out of place. So, um, I think she's around 30 years of age now and playing, still playing for Galway. She would be another one who really made an impression on me. From the men's side, um, I signed a guy from Barbados called Gregory Goodridge uh, when I was at Torquay. And Kevin Millard, who's now a assistant manager in Spain in the second division, he, he's an English guy from Iraq. He, his family lived in Torquay, his mother and father lived in Torquay. So Torquay was the first uh, club he contacted regarding this guy. And, um, you know, he was selling not selling him in, in the sense for money, but because he was a free agent, a free player. And Kevin rang me and said, look, this guy is a good player, don't you want to have a look at him? I'll bring him over, won't you? You know, we won't, won't get you to pay for his flight or anything. Kevin brought him over and this guy, you know, he walked in the door, very shy, looked at looked the player, about five foot nine, five foot ten. Um, and he was incredible. Absolutely, could do anything. You know, with a ball, he was so skillful, he was quick. They eventually, we eventually sold them to uh, Queen's Park Rangers for 250,000. We were like playing in Division 4. The chairman couldn't believe, you know, he was getting this kind of money. Um, so Gregory Goodridge was an amazing player. He went on to Bristol City, probably didn't fulfill his potential, um, but still in contact with him now. Um, you know, he lives in Barbados and uh, a fantastic player, fantastic guy. He used to, he used to stay behind after training. Uh, himself and a guy called Chima Okuri, who was a uh, Nigerian. And they used to say, Gaffer, can you stay out with us? Like, you know, and I say, what do you want to do? And uh, ah, just do a bit of practice. And they had me on the, out in the right wing, right? And uh, they had me crossing balls. And they were doing bicycle kicks. And they would do like 20 bicycle kicks, one after another. And they would land on their backs, obviously, but never once did they hurt themselves. So... Some of the English lads who were playing for me started to venture in saying, can we join in that for? And I'm going, yeah, of course you can. But these guys, like after two or three attempts, were like getting up, pulling themselves up off the ground in pain. Um, but Gregory, you know, he, he literally could do anything with a ball. Um, fantastic player. So they, them two, Handwan and, and Gregory Goodridge, would be the two players who really were the most talented and best professionals, I suppose, that I ever worked with. 
John, so you, you touched on the League of Ireland there yet at seven years in total. Um, how do you look, you know, obviously the League of Ireland has changed a lot. Uh, you know, share with us what you think uh, of the League of Ireland itself at the moment and the growth over the years in both the men's and the women's side of the League of Ireland. Yeah. Yeah, when, I mean, when I first came, um, obviously, Andy, you know all about it. You were involved with, with me with the under-17s and um, it was... You know, it was my dream. The first thing was to to bring in an underage team, which is which is what we did. You guys went on to win the Irish Cup, um, which is an amazing achievement. But um, the other thing I was trying to do was make it as professional as possible. So you know, at one stage, we we asked all the players to try. Uh, you know, most of them were based in Galway, which was great. Um, and we asked them to try and, you know, get time off work or get time off college um, twice a week, maybe Tuesdays and Thursdays, um, so we could have an hour at lunchtime. So, you know, there was guys working in all different uh, jobs and they would ask the boss, can I have like Tuesday and Thursday off? And they would work, you know, say they had a half an hour break at lunch break or an hour break. They would work that extra uh, lunchtime on other days, which was brilliant. So, you know, we had a, we had the dream of, bringing players in on a professional basis, but we couldn't afford it. But we were trying to do it as near as possible. So we would sometimes train three times a week, uh, twice in the day, once at night. Um, that was the step that, you know, I was trying to, to make at that time. But um, it was difficult because people just didn't have the money. Um, but nowadays, the difference is, obviously, you've got clubs like Dundalk and Rovers who are full-time um, even Galway next year are going to be full-time, which is amazing for the Division One club. But John Caulfield has obviously come in, made a great impression. The owners think it's worth the risk, um, you know, to, to give this guy a full-time job and his players. Um, but they're going for promotion, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't back in, I wouldn't back against them. I think John is a fantastic motivator and, and could well get them up next year, and hopefully they, they do go. Um, but you can see from Dundalk and from Rovers, I mean, these two were the stick, you know, the standout teams really. Bowes, obviously, as well. And I, I'm not 100 percent sure if all Bowes players are, are full-time pro, but um, I know Rovers and Dundalk are, and um, they're obviously playing huge money. Um, and it's great that these guys can. Dundalk obviously made a huge amount of money from the Europa League experience this year again. Um, Rovers obviously went and won the league unbeaten. Um, and again, you know, there's no coincidence that these guys are doing so well because they are full-time. And the league would probably never get huge recognition until, I suppose, everyone goes full-time. And this year has been an awful year because of the pandemic. And anyone that was planning to go full-time is probably having second thoughts because of the financial difficulties. Um, but hopefully, you know, we will, if we can add one more pro club or two pro clubs every year, it would definitely help improve things. Um, you know, it's it's important that the the league is is as high a standard as possible. And Dundalk have played every game in Europa League this year. Unfortunately, didn't win one. Um, but then they go and you know on the other side of it, you got Division One, um, and then they go and hammer Athlone eleven nil in the cup semi final, which just seems outrageous in in some ways. So you know there is a there is a huge gap between Athlone and and say Dundalk or Athlone and Shamrock Rovers. And you just love to see that gap close um, sometime, anytime soon, really, because I think it will help enormously. Now, on the other hand, one of the, the things that I believe is, is 
is a good idea, is what Rude Doctor has done, you know, bringing in on the 13s, 15s, 17s, 19s into the League of Ireland. So it's a bit like, I suppose, a club, um, St. Maryland Woods, the team I'm one of the teams I'm associated with in Galway. When we get to under 13 level, if we have a player, we'd love to send them into Galway United and love to see him represent uh, Galway United, you know, having started with Maryland Woods. A bit like the Gaelic, I suppose, you know, any, any Gaelic player playing for his club team gets a, job, gets a chance to play for Galway in the All-Ireland or any, any game really for Galway. It's a huge lift for the kid and also for the club. Um, so I'm hoping, you know, the one the idea for, that Rude Doctor has brought on board for the League of Ireland with 13, 15, 17, 19 is brilliant. Obviously, now what you're hoping for is that the standard of coaching is at a high level to bring these high-level players to another level. Um, and you know, I I know it's a bit early in, in the day for to, to be thinking about this, but I'd love to know, you know, say two or three years down the road, what the percentage of you know, these lads, these 13s, when they get to 19, are they playing in the first team? 19-year-olds, yeah. when they get to 20, are they going to play? In, no, because I know in Galway, there was a situation a couple of years ago where, you know, a lot of the, the lads who finished under 19, you know, left the club, didn't go on into the first team because they weren't deemed to be good enough. So that idea from Rude Doctor was brilliant and will help the League of Ireland improve, I'm sure, in time. But it means, in my opinion, that the coaching at that level has to be high standard for these kids to, to progress and be better. Um, in the women's side, I think the improvement in the women's league um, is plain to see if you go and watch a game. Um, again, you know, without being disrespectful to my time um, when I first came back, there was a lot of teams, I say a lot of teams, quite a few players in the league who were overweight, you know, who didn't really have the skill levels that you would require at that League of Ireland level. Um, but I think, you know, that's improved dramatically uh, in the last few years. The standard seems to be a lot better. There's a lot more athletic looking players, certainly uh, playing in every team. Um, it's a brilliant uh, improvement, in my opinion. And to see, I know the Irish girls played the qualify this year, but they've got a top class coach in Vera. Um, you know, she didn't achieve what she was hoping to, but... And there's rumours that, you know, is she staying, is she going? I hope she stays. Because the, the match against Ukraine away, it was it was a, an absolute travesty in the end that we lost. We totally dominated the game, but we, you know, we an own goal won the game. And that's what killed us in the group. But the starting 11 that day, and it was like 10 professionals. Yeah, and the other girl, um, it was, you know, it was, it was brilliant to see that we had 10 professional players. And, and you know, Hopefully in the future, everyone will be professional um, representing the country. And again, when will we see professionalism coming into the, the women's team League of Ireland? They're the kind of things that I think can happen, should happen. Um, and, you know, it's really important that the League of Ireland continues to improve. So, as I said, if we can see progression with, player, with um, you know, good training from a very early age, good coaching, and more professional teams, more professional clubs, it would be amazing, it would be fantastic. And I think, you know, we would be going into games in Europe with a chance of winning a game now and then. So time will tell. Hopefully that's, you know, once we get over this coronavirus uh, stuff, we'll be able to hopefully see an improvement with uh, both the men's and women's in the League of Ireland. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, Don, last question for me. Um... You know, you mentioned a bit about Vera there, but the thoughts on the women's and men's national team and the current state of Irish football as immigrants looking from afar. We 
you know, we, we think obviously the women's has been brilliant to watch from, from afar and, and the men's obviously with the changes, Stephen Kenny, um, how do you, how do you see it going? And uh, there's a lot of excitement with both men's and women's. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, scepticism about uh, how the Irish men's team has, has gone on, you know, they've, they've not won enough and not scored enough and so on. But Stephen Kenny, I know Stephen Kenny from our days when I was at uh, Galway and Sligo. And, uh, we used to we used to ring each other kind of once a week, at least talking about, you know, each other's opponents, getting the lowdown. Um, there was hardly any video coverage back then, I suppose. Um, Stephen is a very shrewd guy, very intelligent coach, a very intelligent man. Um, he has a style of play which is attractive on the eye as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I really hope that he's given a lot more time um, to show what he can do. The circumstances in which he's, you know, found himself recently with the coronavirus and, you know, players not being available, players catching it, players not catching it, players out of the squad in huge matches has been, it's been dreadful for him. Um, and until he gets an even playing field, you know, I don't think he can judge the guy. But in my opinion, he is, is a guy... He's done really, really well with the you know young 21s. And I actually did a bit of scouting for him on the China team when he was in um, Toulon, I think it was, in one of the tournaments. Um, he's, he's so, you know, he, he leaves no stone unturned. He's, he's, his tactical brain is, is very, very good. And I really do hope he, he you know, he's given time to, to show how good he can be. Because from what I hear, you know, the players really enjoy working with him. Um, he knows his stuff. I know him, as I said, personally, and, and whether I'd say this to him, I don't know. I, I just feel he needs, you know, he needs a guy alongside him. He's got people who have played the game, obviously, but he needs a guy maybe older than himself um, who, who knows a bit about the game. I'm not saying Harry Redknapp because I don't think Harry maybe would be the man, but someone in that kind of category who, you know, has seen, you know, Premier League football or as a manager and would be able to help Stephen along the way. I think it would be a great move if it was to bring someone in, you know, in the background, not necessarily taking training, but just, hey, that was a great session today, or maybe yeah, you yeah. should do this. Um, like a general manager kind of type, um, or a director of football. I think it, it would help him enormously. Um, but I, I do believe in him 100%. And as I said, I, I hope Vera stays because she seems to be a bit of fresh air also. Um, so I, you know, in the next, I think you've got to give people time, and I think, you know, two or three years down the road, hopefully we'll be saying, Jesus, it's great that we kept Veer and great that we kept Stephen, um, because they've done a fantastic job and they've got us to a couple of tournaments. Um, it would be brilliant, you know, not just for them, um, but for the kids who, in the past, you know, when Ireland reached major tournaments, the World Cup, the Europeans. You know, the, the country was rocking in there, wasn't it? It was incredible. Um, the impression that it made on kids who maybe were thinking, am I going to be a tennis player, a Gaelic player, a rugby player? They all wanted to play soccer. It was, it was brilliant because Ireland had made a major tournament. Unfortunately, we won't be making the Euros, but, you know, the, the draw for the World Cup men's um, is, is it's doable. I'm, I'm hoping that we can, we can qualify. And the women, I said, if they keep there and keep improving them players, I think they have a chance of qualifying for the next major tournament as well. Absolutely. Well, Don, this is uh, this is fantastic. I think we're going to have to have a part two, uh, Don O'Riordan, a uh, USA and China <laughs> episode, because this, uh, and also the, the 
the stories in England as well. And I'm sure there's more stuff in China that we'd love to go into and all these people uh, in the US you played against. And, you know, next time, maybe some Georgie, more Georgie Best stuff and, and things <laughs> like that. But uh, fantastic, great insights. I mean, like you said, traveling the world, seeing things, it, it's such a such a great uh, adventure. Football can bring everyone. So we're um, we're very appreciative of your time. And, uh, you know, we, we wish you a happy Christmas and we wish everyone a happy Christmas out there. And, we wish you the best and hopefully we'll see you in Galway for a pint here soon. You never know. Absolutely. And uh, thank you very much, Dara. The same. Thank you very much for asking Thanks me. I really appreciate on. it. And uh, thank you to all the coaches who are watching and listening. And uh, yeah, have a fantastic Christmas, guys. And hopefully, you know, 2021 brings us all uh, on board, back into natural coaching and training and uh, playing games. So thank you very, very much and happy Christmas and have a great new year. Cheers, Don. Thanks, Don. Cheers, and thanks a million. Thanks, Dara. See you, lads. Bye now.